is your host, Jared Hocking. Before I bring you today's episode, I want to take a moment to share why you might consider supporting this work. I usually leave this for the end of the podcast, but today I'm bringing it up to the front. And if you don't care to listen to this, then feel free to fast forward to the episode. This will be about three minutes long. But I think that it's important to listen to, and I would appreciate it if you did. So far, I've taken on the project that is this podcast at great personal investment, both in terms of money, but more so in terms of time. And the truth is that a podcast like this isn't free to produce in any sense. I have to pay for a website and hosting platform. I have to pay for a monthly subscription to services like Zencaster, which I use to record the podcast, and so on. Now, this begs the question of why you, the listener, should bear the cost of this production and not me. And this is a valid question. The answer I might give is that unless at some point someone besides me supports this work, it's not sustainable, which means that the show will not go on. Now, some podcasters might already have the great fortune to do this solely as a hobby outside of their substantial income or savings and don't need listener support. But for many like me, that's not the case. It's a similar model really to public radio. Public radio is both an educational mechanism but also a fact-finding engine, like the New York Times or the Atlantic or National Geographic. And without subscribers, without those who are consuming the product supporting it directly, then we are left to advertisers or sponsors to support it. And as I talked about in episode 11 with the journalist Rachel Gross, this can have all kinds of perverse incentives. Namely, that there is less revenue for journalists to power their fact-finding missions, to hold power to account and contribute to the fight for justice. The bottom line here is that ideas matter. And education is paramount as a starting place. While on this show, I might not have yet held power to account, I might in the future and will continue to shed a spotlight on ideas and trends that have the power to change your mind, which might change your behavior, ideally making the world a better and more civil place. And if that is the case, I would greatly appreciate your support to, at the very least, cover the cost of this production. So I encourage you, if you are finding value in the All Things Connected podcast, to support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash all underscore things underscore connected. And that link can be found in the show notes for this episode and the description of the show. Thank you very much for that. Okay, with that said, today I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Mohai. Dr. Mohai is a professor at the University of Michigan School for Environment and Sustainability, where I graduated from in the spring of this year and took one of Dr. Mohai's courses in the fall of 2019. There's no question that Dr. Mohai has shaped the direction of federal and state policy with regards to environmental justice. For example, in 1990, he co-organized with Dr. Bunyan Bryant the Michigan Conference on Race and the Incidence of Environmental Hazards, which has been credited by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency as one of the two events bringing the issue of environmental justice to their attention. In this conversation, we talk about the concepts and definition of environmental justice, how the fight for environmental justice dovetails with the fight against all forms of oppression and the fight for social justice, what gives Dr. Mohai optimism that progress can be made on this issue, and much more. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And now I bring you Dr. Paul Mohai. Okay, I'm here with Dr. Paul Mohai, my professor at the University of Michigan. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. You're welcome. Thanks for asking. For many listeners today, this might be one of the first times that they're hearing the term environmental justice. I know that it's increasingly entering the public consciousness, but I thought before we 
talk about your research and some of the prominent issues today in environmental justice, it would be helpful probably to talk about how you became, you got into this field and why this is the issue that you've decided to dedicate your whole career to. Yeah. So, well, when I was working on my uh, PhD and then this issue was not something that was widely uh, known, it was really at that time sort of a new area for which there weren't specific academic programs that at least I was aware of. You know, I, I was starting to really understand that I, I really cared a lot about the environment. Probably somewhere in the middle of my undergrad years, it was clear to me that the environment was an important issue and it was important to me. I was recognizing that environmental problems weren't problems about biology or ecology. They were people problems. So I wanted to know more about people's attitudes about nature and the environment. And I wasn't aware of the fact that environmental pollution and and other kinds of environmental burdens were unevenly spread in society. But what got me aware was two things happened very close together. And this was kind of the life changer for me was that in 1987, the uh, Commission for Racial Justice of the United Church of Christ came out with a report called Toxic Waste and Race in the United States. And I started at the University of Michigan, my assistant professorship in July of 1987. And when I got to Michigan, you know, I read it from cover to cover and I read it very carefully. And at the time I was astounded because back in those days, back in the 60s and 70s and most of the 80s, we tended to talk about environmental problems that affect us all and therefore they affect us equally. Here was a study and a report that was saying, no, that's not true. There's groups of people that that are more heavily impacted than others. And I would say that was the turning point for me because one of the things that I got very curious about was whether other studies like it existed. And I was interested in knowing whether they had similar findings and drew similar conclusions. Uh, There were two names that kept coming up, and that was Robert D. Bullard and Beverly Wright. And when I read their papers, I was really astonished because they had already begun writing about environmental racism and environmental inequities and environmental injustice way before even Toxic Waste and Race uh, had been published in 1987. And that astonished me. And they were very frank. Dr. Bollard and Dr. Wright, it was clear they they weren't pulling any punches. And I was very struck by that. And you mentioned Dr. Mohai during that. One of the seminal moments in maybe the really beginning of environmental justice entering the public consciousness was that publication, as you mentioned, of the United Church of Christ report, Mm -hmm. Toxic Waste and Race in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that was actually shortly after the sit-in against Warren County in North Carolina, where there was this proposed PCB landfill in Warren County, North Carolina, in a predominantly black district. Your career really dovetailed closely with the beginning of the environmental justice movement. And Mm -hmm. you were really well positioned to take advantage of, as you said, your statistical skills to lend credibility and scientific expertise to the movement. So many of our listeners, if they are like me, may be hearing the term environmental justice for the first time. It's quite possible. And although I have dedicated really my whole life, I've been dedicated to the environment. It was only within the past two years when I started my master's program in environmental policy at University of Michigan, where we met, that I came to learn about environmental justice. So I think it's important for us to 
define and explain what we mean when we talk about environmental justice. And another term that is sometimes used is environmental racism. So would you be able to define these terms for listeners and perhaps provide a brief synopsis adding on to those key moments of the environmental justice movement that I just talked about? Well, let me start with the term environmental justice. I think there's multiple explanations of, I think, essentially the same concept. And I actually have done my own exercise in terms of comparing and contrasting written definitions, but I think they all amount to the same thing. The definition, I frankly, I like the most because it's really straightforward and easy to, to remember is that environmental justice is the right of everyone to a clean, healthy, safe environment where they live, work, go to school and pray. I think it's an accurate definition and easy to you know, express in one sentence. Having said that, uh, there are more elaborated definitions, but again, there's no, I don't see any contradiction. I think they all are pointing to the same thing. EPA, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, also has its definition of environmental uh, justice. And because it's a federal agency whose job it is to implement policy, they're always looking for thresholds and criteria and so on. And so they need more of a working definition. And their working definition is that environmental justice is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of their race, socioeconomic position, all sorts of demographic characteristics. They list a whole wide range of them in their formal definition. And then they go on to explain what they mean by fair treatment. And if you look at that definition, it really amounts to there should be fairness in the distribution of environmental quality. You know, it's not that some people should get clean air and green space and parks, and then others get polluted air and mostly asphalt, no vegetation, and no park. So fair treatment means equitable distribution of environmental quality. And then when they talk about meaningful involvement, they mean that people should have a genuine voice in the decisions that are going to affect the environmental quality of their neighborhoods. And so if we have industries that want to locate in specific communities, or if we have industries that are seeking permits to increase the amount of emissions, the local community, which in effect is hosting them, should have a meaningful voice in what actually happens. So EPA has a more elaborated definition. And then another source, which I think if somebody asked me, well, what's the most authoritative source? I would say it's the 17 principles of environmental justice uh, that were enumerated and articulated in the 1991 first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit that was held in October of 1991 in Washington, D.C. And what those 17 principles do is it takes the ideas that in those first two definitions I mentioned just provides more meat to the bone. It provides more detail and looks at all the different forms that environmental injustices take. And one of the elements in those 17 principles that's not covered in the EPA definition is the idea of corrective justice, that once harm has been done, once the damage has been made, environmental justice also means righting that justice, compensating the harm, compensating the loss, trying to make the community whole again. And it also involves the idea of holding uh, those that were responsible for the harm accountable. So those are the three places that I tend to refer to people. That, that simple definition of the right of everyone to a clean, healthy, safe environment, no matter where they live, work, play, and pray. As I said, I like that a lot because it's so easy to understand, and, and I think it's very appropriate and right on target. 
That's excellent. And one of the papers for me that has been most helpful in understanding what's at stake in environmental justice and what environmental justice is and what we're fighting for is your paper published in 2018 in the Michigan Sociological Review, Dr. Mohai. And in that paper, you describe a definition that's been very helpful for me, outlined originally by Professor Robert Kuhn. And he outlines four principles that make up environmental justice, one of which you just touched on, which is corrective or restorative justice, and the others being distributive justice, which we can think of, as you said, as the fair treatment and procedural justice, and then finally social justice. So briefly, can you add a little bit of context to each of these in terms of yeah. how we, we think about environmental justice? Because then we're what I'm going to follow that up with is, to what extent are we meeting that definition today? Let me say that Professor Kuhn, who's, he used to be on the faculty at Tulane University, and he ran a law clinic where he used a law clinic to help train law students to deal with real life issues. And there was a controversy in the 1990s having to do with a company wanting to put what would have been the world's largest PVC polyvinyl chloride manufacturing plant in almost 100% African-American community called Convent, uh, Convent, Louisiana. And he helped the residents there make a legal case to keep that from happening, partly because the community at that time already had 20 uh, major polluting industrial facilities in it. And people were very concerned about the pollution and the health consequences that they were experiencing and felt that strongly that there was a link. So he wrestled with himself the exact same question. (laughs) We hear these terms, environmental racism, environmental discrimination, environmental inequality, environmental justice, environmental injustice. And he was trying to sort out, well, do they all mean the same thing? Do they mean something different? And that's how he started with this article he wrote that he had published in 2000 called The Taxonomy of Environmental Justice. And that's where he came up with those four concepts of distributive justice, procedural justice, corrective justice, and social justice. And I would say that when he talks about distributive justice, it's very much in the same vein as the EPA's idea of fair treatment, which involves equitable distribution of environmental quality. And when he talks about procedural justice, it's also very closely aligned with EPA's idea of meaningful involvement, giving people a real say in the decisions that's going to affect the quality of the environment of their communities and the quality of, of life. And he also explicitly talked about corrective justice, which I, you know, I think I explained a couple of minutes ago, which involves trying to right the harm, trying to compensate people for the harm, at the same time holding the people responsible accountable. And then he had a fourth idea of uh, social justice. And his point with that was that environmental inequality or injustices don't happen in isolation. Communities that are experiencing disproportionate environmental burdens are also communities where you see discrimination, underinvestment, insufficient access to jobs and economic development. So there are many types of injustices going on in the same communities with environmental injustice as being another component of that. So he talks about how they're all, all linked together and also raises some interesting questions about whether any of them can be solved without addressing all of them together. Very interesting. We're actually going to get into that because there's been an increasing realization, which is certainly a sign of progress, that 
many of these issues are connected, that the fight for environmental justice closely overlaps with the fight for social justice and the discrimination against people of color in our country and the unfair treatment of them is not just happening in one domain, it's happening in a number of domains. And this is part of a a broader movement for progress. So we're going to get into that. I thought one thing you said, this idea of meaningful involvement might be one that our listeners on its face just sounds like a nice thing to have, but it's actually perhaps the most important issue for the reason that environmental injustices are happening. And we're going to talk about that too with your paper, what came first, pollution or people? Because a lot of these, what you found is that actually the reason that communities of color have been disproportionately harmed by environmental burdens is because of decisions made without their involvement and with people, city councils and state legislatures that were largely out of their control. So that's not a benign, innocuous thing. It, It actually could really have significant weight on addressing these. So considering that definition we just discussed, Dr. Mohai, where do we stand as a country today on the issue of environmental justice, considering those four pillars And considering the standard is that no one group or community should be disproportionately affected by environmental harms and that every person and group should receive fair treatment and meaningful involvement, regardless of their race, regardless of their color or national origin. How are we doing? How are we meeting that standard? Let me begin answering that by maybe trying to start on a positive note. And that is that I see success is making progress and raising awareness about this issue, and also getting to the point where we have public agencies, both at the federal level and at the state level, not only acknowledging the problem, but also trying to articulate policies to deal with it. I think those are successes. I think also that as the environmental justice movement has advanced, uh, there are more organizations that have formed around environmental justice, that in turn builds capacity. You have more voices, not just single voices or isolated voices, but you have uh, organized voices and you have multiple organizations. And I think that that's also increased the impact of the movement. And another positive I see is that I never anticipated the enormous academic interest in environmental justice. I would say the earliest people involved were sociologists and maybe a couple of economists, but now it cuts across all sorts of disciplines, public health, law, urban planning, geography. And I think that's, to me, an amazing phenomenon. It's actually made it hard, (laughs) to be honest, to keep up with the literature as an academic and also the uh, growth and the kind of uh, questions that are being asked. Uh, The earliest question was, whether or not this phenomenon is real, and due to the number of support claims from uh, environmental justice communities, then there became debates about, well, is it mostly a function, if the disparities exist, is, is it mostly a function of income? Does race play a role or an added role? How do the disparities occur? And also, probably one of the newest areas of work is connecting environmental justice with public health. To what extent do racial and socioeconomic disparities in the distribution of environmental contamination, to what extent are they linked to racial and socioeconomic disparities in health? 
and mortality. That's a relatively new area of research. So that's another thing that's I've seen a lot of branching out. Mm-hmm. Those are all the positives. Now, <laughs> what about the negative? You know, we've been now debating environmental justice or talking about environmental justice. Both the federal governments and states' governments have been discussing policy for decades now. What we haven't seen really is evidence that there's been actual change on the ground. And that's what's missing. And there are a lot of policy statements out there, again, in the various states and at the federal government, but there's no evidence that those policies have uh, changed anything. And I have said to a number of audience, uh, and I'm going to repeat this here, that to actually make a convincing case that any of these policies are actually making a difference, three things have to happen. We, we need to set some targets as what we want to accomplish. So here's a community that's overburdened with pollution. It seems to me that an obvious target would be to reduce that pollution. Okay, let's say we decided that's what we're going to do. Number two, what's the plan to get to that? What, what's the step-by-step plan? No generalities. Show me the plan and make those steps reasonable. Would those move the needle? And then the mm-hmm. third thing we would have to do is actually have a means of measuring whether or not a difference was made. I don't see that at any level anywhere. And once that happens and somebody does that, they obviously will be taking a giant step, but it, they would also provide models for others to follow. Anyway, that's where things are missing. I've, I've told other audiences that until we get to that point, all policy statements at the federal or, or state level are really not much more than declarations of good intentions. What we re- actually need to do is set targets, have plans for reaching them, and then be able to measure whether or not we've made progress towards those targets. Mm-hmm. And. Part of this might be, Dr. Mohai, part of the answer to this question might be what you found, you and Laura Greer and your students found with regards to the overlap between communities with large concentrations of minority residents and the overlap there with high concentrations of environmental burdens. Would you be able to de- describe or summarize briefly your findings from that study? Yeah, let me, let me fill in, if I can, uh, Jared, a little bit more background with that, because the reason that the project happened was because the uh, Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition had submitted a proposal to our school, uh, School for Environment Sustainability, to investigate environmental justice cumulative impact assessment tools that are currently being used in other places in the, in the U.S., and whether they, those could serve as models for creating an environmental justice cumulative impact assessment tool in Michigan, the students could only use data that were already publicly available. But anyway, when they used the tool that with the data that were available in doing their environmental justice assessment, they clearly showed disparities throughout the state. Their geographic units were census tracts, and they used the uh, data to rank all the census tracts in Michigan in terms of how those tracks fared on their environmental justice indicators. And what they did was they sorted them into uh, percentiles and then looked at the average values in each of the percentiles. For example, they would look at the African-American percentage, the percentage of linguistically isolated people, percentage of people living in poverty, percent unemployed. They would look at environmental indicators such as cancer risk and respiratory risk and number of Superfund sites and industrial facilities. And they showed that those indicators, the averages were higher 
the higher up in the percentile they were. And it not only provided a means for showing where the, let's say, the environmental justice hotspots are in Michigan, but the fact that they that there was such a range also demonstrated empirically that the inequalities exist. We had a perfect world where perfect equality existed. Uh, there would be no variation in the score, but there was a great deal of variation in them. And they, they demonstrated that very well in the report. Yeah, absolutely. From what I remember about this report, the students were able to identify hotspots in areas that were primarily populated by people of color in parts of Detroit and parts of Grand Rapids and Flint and Saginaw, some of which, including Flint, are majority minority Mm -hmm. communities where there was high amounts of pollution, totally disproportionate to the rest of the state where these areas had large concentrations of minority residents. So during the course of the semester, Dr. Mohai, there's few things that always, <laughs> pieces of knowledge that always remain with us. But one of the most striking articles that I have read is this piece that was assigned in our class by Zoe Schlinger in Newsweek. And mm-hmm. the title of the article is Choking to Death in Detroit, Flint Isn't Michigan's Only Environmental Justice mm-hmm. Disaster. And this story was shocking to me. It's almost a story emblematic of this famous article at the end of the 19th century by Jacob Rees, I believe the time frame there is right, called How the Other Half Lives, right? And this is just emblematic of there are people not so far from us. I mean, literally, I am sitting in a home 20 minutes from downtown Detroit where the story took place that are living in a completely different reality. So included in the article are findings such as According to the latest state data, more than 15% of Detroit's adults have asthma, a rate 29% higher than the rest of Michigan. And Detroiters are hospitalized for their asthma three times more frequently than other Michiganders. And it also includes data that you, in fact, produced, which is about the concentration of air pollution where Black Detroit school children attend school versus where white children attend school. Can you summarize your findings from that research and what yeah, is implications yeah. are? The study that you're mentioning, Jared, was a study, uh, which, by the way, was my colleague, Professor Byung Su Kwan, who uh, was a research scientist here at the University of Michigan. Now she's a, an associate professor at the University of Maryland. She and I have been working for quite a long time now on the topic of environmental burdens around public schools and the implications for children's health and academic performance. And and one of the first studies that we did was our study in Michigan, where we used multiple environmental databases to estimate environmental quality within two kilometers of all the public schools in, in Michigan, and then to look at how they related to student absenteeism and uh, performance on standardized tests. And when we did that study, we we started out with, with three overall questions. The first question was whether or not schools tend to be located in the um, cleaner or more polluted parts of the district. Would we also find the estimated pollution burden, the greater the concentration of poor students and students of color? And then also, would we find linkages between estimated pollution burdens and students' performance on academic tasks? And we got a very affirmative answer to all three questions. It was stunning to us to find in our first study that almost two-thirds of the schools in Michigan 
are located in the more polluted parts of their districts. It was shocking to us because even if if nobody was looking at the environment, you would expect something random and maybe 50% of the time the schools are in the more polluted and the other 50% of the time they're in the less polluted, but it was two-thirds. So it's not even a random pattern. By the way, we replicated that analysis in all the Great Lakes states and the patterns are very, very similar. So it's not just a problem in Michigan. And we also did find that there is a very large racial disparity. One of the steps we took was to look at estimated air pollution burdens within every kilometer in the state. And we sorted the, those kilometer squares into deciles. And we found that about 44% of all school children in Michigan go to schools in the top 10 decile. But for African-American students, it was something like 82%. And for Hispanic students, it was something like 62%. So that was our first finding dealing with the racial issue. And then when we went on to look at uh, the physical location of major highways and industrial facilities, we found the same disparities that the closer you got to a major source of pollution, the greater the percentage of African-American and Hispanic students and the, the smaller the percentage of white students in the, in the school. So by the way, we also found that there is a link between these estimated pollution burdens and student performance on academic tests. And we found that that linkage persists even when we controlled for as many different possible confounders that we could get data on, that, which included the size of the school, teacher-student ratios, expenditures per pupil, the urban rural, suburban location of the schools, attendance rates, whatever we could get our hands on. And even when we controlled for these other factors, the linkage between the estimated pollution burden and their performance on academic tests remains statistically significant. Right. And all of that is very unsettling, Dr. Mohai. I think it's also important to discuss your findings with regards to the fact that these disparities that we've found and observed are not due to chance. In other words, it's not by chance that people of color are living with such higher rates of pollution and being overburdened by that. And I think one of the best papers, one of the seminal papers in the environmental justice field discussing this is your 2015 paper titled, What Came First, People or Pollution? And in that paper, you reviewed historical data dating back to the 1960s to evaluate how it came to be that communities of, of color are facing these disproportionate environmental harms. So can you summarize for our listeners what question you were seeking to answer with that study? And yeah, to me, it's been a really important question, and it's been a hard one to get an answer to based on empirical data because the data are so hard to get. So maybe widen this a little bit more to provide context. When this issue began to gain traction in the early and mid-1990s, there were really a lot of efforts to discredit the whole notion. There were efforts to discredit toxic waste and race in the United States, and people like myself who said, no, the evidence is supported by other uh, studies. The first debate was whether or not the, it's real. Does the evidence support that argument? And in the early days, it was a challenge because, as I mentioned earlier, there, was, there were so few published uh, studies at that time. But I also think that that also spurred a lot of pe other people to do their own original research to see if those findings 
can be replicated. And I think that's no longer a debate, you know, that the disparities have been pretty well proven over the years. So the, the other, <laughs> it almost seems like a tactic to me. So, okay, well, we can't discount that the disparities exist, but certainly there's no racial dimension. So that was the other, I call it the race versus class debate, because, well, if, if we have to admit that there are social disparities, it's not as, um, I don't know, embarrassing or threatening to say, well, first, they're a function of socioeconomic condition, and it has, it has nothing to do with race. And, you know, that's blatantly untrue. I mean, the data clearly show that racial disparities persist, even when you control for other socioeconomic characteristics of communities. And there's good reason to believe that that would be so, because we've had a long, very long history of slavery and Jim Crow and all sorts of discriminatory uh, laws that put people in segregated communities. Then we redlined them and, you know, disinvested in them and kind of a popular argument that I've heard economists make, which which I don't understand why they're so short-sighted, is uh, people move with their feet. <laughs> their models don't take into account prejudice and racial discrimination. And so they don't even address it, as far as I know. Anyway, I, I think the evidence is pretty compelling that it's not just socioeconomic factors alone, but that has been a long-time debate. The other debate, and again, this has to do with who do we blame? I call it the chicken or egg question in environmental justice. So present-day disparities, how'd they get, get here? There's only two possible processes that either at the time a hazardous waste facility or some other polluting industrial facility is cited, there was a pattern of actually putting them mostly in people of color communities at the time they were cited, whether it was in 1950, 1960, 1970, 1980. The other possibility is that, well, maybe there was no such pattern. You know, affluent white communities were just as likely to get a PCB landfill as anybody else. But once it was placed there and uh, people started to, you know, notice the negative things about it, or maybe uh, just people knowing that there's a hazardous waste landfill near your home might drive down property values. I call that the economic argument. So the argument goes that, and this is the economists tend to like this argument, that the, the people vote with their feet argument. It's going to cause people to leave. Okay, if that's the case, and I'm not saying it doesn't also happen, but there's also clear uh, socioeconomic and racial disadvantages. The people who can move are the ones, the wealthier people who have the financial means to buy up into a more expensive, let's say, environmentally cleaner neighborhood. But then on top of that, if you're a person of color, you may also be facing housing discrimination that further limits your, your options. The argument is that it's those two possible processes. Either there's a pattern of disproportionately putting new facilities where people of color and poor people live, or that doesn't happen, but once the facility is built, people sort themselves. Some people move out because it's become a less desirable place to live. Poor people will be left behind. People of color will be left behind. And the other part of that argument, by the way, is uh, poor people and people of color will begin to move in because of lowering of property values, it's also going to make housing more affordable. So anyway, obviously, either one of those things could happen or both. And I've seen debates about that. And I think there's a political dimension to it. And that is that if you admit that there is a pattern of disproportionately placing what some people call locally unwanted land uses in people of color communities, that now puts the responsibility on industry and government for allowing that to happen. It's a form of discrimination. Why are you allowing 
these new pollution sources being disproportionately placed where people of color live. But if you could say, well, that doesn't happen at all, people sort themselves, that's now shifting the responsibility and the blame now to the resident. And that's more, from some people's point of view, more palatable. Again, the economic argument of people voting with their feet. So that's become a really important question because of that. So there's a a very, so knowing which processes occur and maybe both occur is important to know because if you pass policy or you try to implement policy that would manage the siting process and find out, well, it doesn't matter doing that because eventually people will sort themselves and we'll have the disparities anyway. And then maybe managing the siting process is not wasn't the solution after all. Maybe better informing people about the uh, environmental conditions of the properties they want to buy or some other policy measure. So that's all been involved in that debate. And mm-hmm. it's sort of a, a blame the victim <laughs> kind of a situation. So we got a grant from the National Science Foundation to address the chicken or egg question. And what we found was that, yes, indeed, there is a pattern at the time of siting. And we only looked at hazardous waste facilities. We didn't have the the resources, the funding to look beyond hazardous waste facilities. But we did find a pattern that over time, there has been a pattern of putting hazardous waste facilities, new hazardous waste facilities, disproportionately where people of color live. And it's not the case that the disparities are a function solely of demographic changes. However, we also looked at the demographic changes after the facilities were cited, and the big surprise and discovery we made was we also did find, actually, demographic changes going on where the communities, where the hazardous waste facilities were being placed, became more concentrated with people of color and more people living below the poverty line. But what we found was that those changes were already occurring in those communities before the siting. So... Again, we kind of, I think, did some damage to the argument that the facilities cause, you know, the people to move. It's actually that people are already moving and the facilities are being sited there. So it's a kind of a double whammy. The, we found a pattern where the facilities are, are sited where there's already a, a disproportionate concentration of poor people and people of color at the sites. But we also found that even though there were demographic changes after the siting, the demographic changes were occurring even before the facilities were being sited there. And a big part of that, as you alluded to, is that many of these during certain periods during the 60s and perhaps even in the 70s, based on what I've read from Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, many of these households, black households that would have liked to move out of these polluted neighborhoods could not because of redlining, as you mentioned. So they were very physically stuck there and the situation was such that it was out of their control for these polluting facilities to be placed there in the first place. They were authorized without their permission and then they were literally forced to remain there by existing regulations. So just a a really cruel development there. If I could add just one more, because I think it's also something that people should think about. It's really uh, gets to the heart of the weakness of, the, well, people couldn't just move with their feet argument, is that these hazardous waste sites and polluting industrial facilities have a negative impact on property values. So to tell someone, for example, with the Flint water crisis. Right after the crisis, uh, there was at least one group I said, how many people want to buy a house in Flint right now? 
And uh, the point being that if the contamination has devalued the property such that even if you can sell your home, will you have enough to buy a new house, an equal house in terms of size and layout, but it's in a cleaner area? Will you be able to to afford it? You can't just give somebody $1,000 or $3,000 for the house and say, okay, now buy a house over here where the houses are fifty, dollars 100000 It's ridiculous. That's why mm-hmm. it, the, the classic economic argument just does not make uh, sense to me. Mm-hmm. And although it's a fairly arcane subject, Dr. Mohai, we know that much of what is happening in these communities is actually the result of a significant loophole in regulation by the EPA, which filters down to the the state agencies, including here in Michigan, the EGLE, which was formerly known as the Department of Environmental Quality. And under the EPA, the reason that our air quality has improved over the past several decades since the 1970s is a result of the Clean Air Act. And with that act, the EPA regulates certain six different chemicals on a or six different air pollutants on a pollutant by pollutant basis. And these are known as the criteria pollutants, Mm -hmm. which are truly toxic chemicals. The list on these, which include lead, nitric oxide, particulate matter, ozone, sulfur dioxide, and nitrogen oxide. Mm -hmm. So many communities are now healthier because the EPA, since the Clean Air Act in the 1970s, has been regulating these. But one significant loophole here is that these pollutants are regulated on a pollutant by pollutant basis. So in other words, the community might be facing a significant amount of nitric oxide and a significant amount of particulate matter. But as long as it stays within the bounds that is regulated by the EPA, they're not looking at the cumulative impact, what has been called of those pollutants. So can you sketch this problem, especially as it relates to Detroit as just one example that we know where this is such a problem. And Teresa Landrum, who you spoke about, has raised this issue and why it's important that we recognize the cumulative burden of pollution and sketching this problem for our listeners. Yeah, well, as you point out, uh, Jared, the current laws and regulations regulate individual pollutants and without taking into account what's already there. So you could make an argument, and again, this is hypothetical, you just explain the situation clearly, is that you may have a certain pollutant in a community, and if that's all there, that was there, it might not be harmful, or as harmful as it could be. But you might have multiple pollutants. You might have all of those chemicals that you listed. And so it raises the question, what's the combined effect of all those? And so current laws and regulations don't take that into account. And the concern about cumulative impacts has been definitely an issue that has been growing very strongly in the whole environmental justice movement, not just in Detroit or in Michigan, but everywhere around the country, That, as far as I know. And it's been a major stimulus, if you will, for creating these cumulative impact assessment tools, also known as environmental justice screening tools, because they're trying to take into account multiple sources of environmental contamination rather than looking at only one thing at a time. And I've been an observer, sometimes I've been an expert witness in, in some of the legal cases. And the argument that I've, I've heard from the other side is that, well, yeah, we're going, it's going to 
involve a little bit of uh, more pollution in the community. But that added amount is not going to be enough to hurt anyone. And actually, there was a case many years ago now, back in the late 1990s, ironically also in Flint, dealing with the um, Flint incinerator. The local residents tried to keep this waste-burning incinerator from being built in their neighborhood and failed, but they kept on their struggle and they wanted to put some restrictions on it, at least if not closing it down entirely. And they had an expert witness, I believe from, I, I don't remember the name, but who I thought really explained it really clearly that uh, she said that this is already an overburdened community. If there's any direction that the pollution should be going, it's down, not up. And to me, that was one of the clearest articulations of the idea of, of cumulative impact assessment. And I think that that is becoming more and more recognized. As I said, it's mm -hmm. a problem everywhere in the country, but, uh, you know, Southwest Detroit, even the uh, Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, now the Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, has mapped the major sources of pollution in that area around 48217 Southwest Detroit. And there's dozens of industrial polluters within a very small area that are in and, and surround 48217. So there's hard data on the locations of these facilities. And then there's air quality monitoring that that's used to estimate the pollution levels. So you know, cumulative impacts is definitely an important problem that's still not being adequately addressed. Yeah. And when you think about it, it could be the fact that these areas are in attainment, so to speak. That's the technical term for mm -hmm. or they're in compliance with the EPA regulations. But because each of those chemicals and each of those pollutants is being regulated on an individual basis, the total cumulative burden could be such that it really presents danger. And this gets into some areas of regulation, which has been very fraught, which is the idea of the precautionary principle versus innocent until proven guilty, which is the precautionary principle would be, well, we don't know that it's for sure safe, so we're going to avoid doing that. Whereas the innocent until proven guilty is, well, we don't know that it's harmful. And much of the time, I mean, we can have a strong intuition that this amount of pollution, when you're combining all these things up right until the limit, is going to be harmful for those communities. And a related point here is that I'm not even sure. I mean, we discussed in our class how this is even legal. We discussed how there have been in Michigan cases where the the Department of Environmental Quality actually approved of more permits for pollution areas that were at the time out of compliance. So Zoe Schlanger points out in this Newsweek article that in 48217, there are 52 sites of heavy industry within a three mile radius. And they are producing about 10,000 pounds of toxic chemical waste on an annual basis. And for years, this area has been out of compliance for sulfur dioxide. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yet the Department of Environmental Quality recently approved of an expansion of the TT Energy and Marathon Petroleum facilities to pollute even more. So that's mm -hmm. a serious loophole that is kind of unclear how it's even legal to do that. These issues about environmental justice and chronic and acute exposure to pollution are not just issues of, of pulmonary disorders. They're not just affecting the lungs and high rates of asthma. Asthma is a disorder, a 
pathology, which is severe enough on its own, but increasingly the scientific community is linking uh, acute levels of exposure to pollution to actually cognitive declines over time. So Mm -hmm. in preparation for this conversation, one study I found was published in 2016 by the World Health Organization that found that exposure to air pollutants can negatively affect neurodevelopment, resulting in lower cognitive test outcomes, which is, I know, something that you've studied, which we just talked about. And also development of behavioral disorders such as the on the autism spectrum and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. A separate study found that 783 children in the Netherlands, this study found that exposure to small particulate air pollution, which we know is one of those uh, pollutants which is regulated under the EPA, caused structural alterations to the cerebral cortex. And this kind of links up to the conversation that I, I had with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha about how the children who are growing up in these environments where due to structural issues over time, have really placed them in these communities where they have no choice but to live under the burden of this pollution. Those children are basically at a a starting point, you know, we're we're moving them back from the starting uh, line in a way that is just completely disadvantaging them even before they come out of the womb. And it's just so, so wrong that even for those children who haven't yet been, been born, that these neurophysiological and cognitive effects are already showing up. So I was, I was curious if you wanted to add anything to this point of discussion from your research and um, the severe cognitive effects that are becoming uh, evident? Uh, yeah, well, a couple, couple things here. First, I want to clarify that we the studies that I've been involved in have looked at uh, various uh, measures of uh, pollution burdens uh, around schools in Michigan and also elsewhere around the country. Uh, we didn't actually look at uh, direct um, measures of, uh, you know, brain function other than to look at students' performance on standardized tests. And we saw links uh, between uh, pollution and the percentages of students failing to meet the standardized tests in English and and uh, uh, math, but uh, as you said, there there is a lot of research. Nevertheless, that's direct uh, uh, research looking at the impact of air pollution on cognitive development in, in children. I would say that uh, those kind that kind of research provides compelling evidence that we need to do everything we can to make sure that the environments where, where schools are located uh, are the healthiest uh, we can find for children, and we also need to. Uh, take into account the air quality inside schools. So it's both inside and outside needs there. We need to pay attention. We also need to look at water quality. You know, we've been finding out a number of places around the country where it's, uh, you know, unacceptable lead levels in in the water in schools that children drink, you know, they've been found. And so uh, we need to do more uh, to monitor the environmental quality in and around schools uh, something that is not, in my, from what I can see, has not been given as much attention as, as should be. You know, a number of states have uh, passed laws to monitor and to uh, uh, make cer- certain that the environmental quality uh, in and around schools is at a high level. Uh, Michigan is not yet one of them, and this is one of the things I'd like to see uh, change when uh, I also was uh, on the environmental justice work group back in 2017 and 2018 that uh, developed 33 recommendations for the state of Michigan to try to uh, avoid 
situations like the Flint water crisis in the future, we called on regular, one of the recommendations has to do with regular testing of the air and water in public schools and daycare uh, centers in Michigan. So uh, that's not yet a law in Michigan. So I'd like to see that uh, change. And uh, those recommendations were submitted to the governor's office back in March of 2018. Uh, That was during the uh, Governor Rick Snyder's administration. And in 2019, uh, with um, right after Governor Gretchen Whitmer was elected, she addressed quite a few of those recommendations in, a, in an executive order. A number of the important recommendations have been implemented, but we still have some ways to go. And I feel we have to go beyond executive orders. We also need laws. Uh, so there's a clear role for the state legislature as well as Congress. I couldn't agree more. And I do think absolutely the academic community continuing to be involved in those discussions and to push for using science and using these established correlates that making it all the more clear that this is an imperative. And one thing that comes through in these discussions, which maybe we haven't clearly hit on yet, Dr. Mohai, is we can't view some lives in this country as expendable. It, it, it cannot be a moral place that we settle on that some children are just living with the effects of pollution while other children get to enjoy a life completely free of that. We, we can't continue to say that this is acceptable. I mean, if the most powerful people in this country or the most powerful people in corporations like Marathon Oil knew that their children were facing such adversities and were really uh, being put at a disadvantage for their entire life because of this level of pollution, I'm almost certain that they would do everything they could to make sure that that would not be the case. And I would argue that we need to recognize that all lives are deserving of equal treatment and environmental protections. And that's really what environmental justice is all about. And so to segue here a little bit, I you know, you just mentioned that you've been a part of these uh, task forces and I'm sure for those listening to this, they're probably asking themselves, well, what is being done? What are, what are the steps being done to address such environmental inequities and environmental injustices? And so one of the things in, in our class and our problem solving course we looked at was how the corporations represent their, their side, because they could be going up until the point of regulation, or they could be even exceeding it and not be curtailing that pollution. And one thing that was so frustrating for me that really a, a point of being becoming infuriated was that you have the CEO of Marathon Oil making $15 million per year and probably living in a mansion somewhere in the suburbs, completely, completely divorced from the consequences of his company's actions. And you have these residents who are paying the price physiologically for that pollution that they're not even really uh, taking you know, uh, benefiting from. That's the concept of energy justice from Dr. Tony Ream. So from my standpoint, the the actions of the corporations, they really need to re- remedy this. And obviously it, it comes in concert with uh, action and regulation by government. But for those listening, I'm, I'm sure they're curious having sat on these panels, so-called um, task forces and delivering those recommendations to Governor Rick Snyder. What has been the outcome from those as, as far as the positive outcome and what's been your general perception working with the corporations on those panels? 
Well, I've been on a number of advisory uh, committees, and I have to say that some have gone further than, than others. I think a lot of times the recommendations that come out of these um, advisory committees are, are steps in the right direction, but um, frankly, they don't go nearly far enough. Uh, I see a lot of potential in the 33 recommendations that were submitted to Governor Snyder back in March of, two, uh, March of 2018, but I think it's, the jury's still out as to what impact that they will have. Uh, I think those recommendations, uh, it's not clear to me how many of them in the end will be uh, implemented. And uh, even though Governor uh, Whitmer has taken some important steps in the right direction through her executive directives and orders, I think uh, a number of those recommendations eventually will have to become uh, legislation. And we just haven't gotten there to that point. And we haven't gotten to that point either at the national level. Uh, the high water mark in terms of uh, federal policy is uh, uh, President Clinton's 1994 executive order, which calls on all the agencies of federal government to take into account the environmental justice consequences of their actions. But we haven't gotten to the point where where people can point to evidence that there's been a change on the ground. And I've made that point before uh, to other audiences that, uh, in my opinion, three things have to happen. First of all, we have to set targets. What is it that we're trying to achieve? And can people understand those targets? And they, will they actually improve conditions in uh, the impacted communities? And number two, we have to have a clear, clearly articulated set of steps for how we're going to achieve those uh, targets. They have to be meaningful to anyone who reads those steps and say, yeah, I could see how that's going to move the ball, uh, rather than just remaining uh, a declaration of good intentions. And then finally, the third thing is that we need to be able to measure the progress uh, on the ground, so to speak. And we haven't achieved those three things yet. And, and to uh, you know, get back to your question, too, about the role of corporations, I think uh, corporations' involvement uh, is extremely uh, important. Uh, they tend to be on these kinds of advisory committees. Uh, and I cannot speak to motive because I think you have to ask them directly. But from what I've observed, uh, I have not seen uh, wholehearted support for environmental justice coming from people uh, representing business uh, interests. Now, having said that, I have seen some variation. I've seen some, I have in fact seen some corporate leaders uh, who appeared to have their hearts in the right place, uh, understood that environmental injustices uh, were not acceptable, and wanted to see some real progress made. I, I, and I felt that, that uh, those people were sincere, but I don't see as many of those people on these advisory committees as I, I'd like. They express a lot of skepticism uh, about the links between pollution and negative health outcomes. I have gotten the impression that the highest priority for many of these representatives is um, the bottom line. And, you know, we need predictability and we also want a level playing field with our competitors. And I have to say, I, I, I find that understandable, but I don't think that uh, corporations should be ignoring or downplaying uh, the impacts uh, on the local communities where their where their factories and plants are located, and mm -hmm. I haven't have not seen a lot of concern coming from corporate rep representatives on that front. Right. I'm going to share something about the profit motive that is 
fairly radical. I feel like in every episode, I drop something that's... <laughs> I'm curious, Dr. Mohai, you... After the Flint water crisis became really a national awakening around environmental justice, Governor Rick Snyder, who is, he was largely blamed or his administration was blamed for what happened in the crisis. He called on the environmental justice task force, which from my understanding was an impressive collection of folks like you from academia, folks from the corporate sector, activists were a part of that, I believe Michelle Martinez. And so you you and the task force delivered these 33 recommendations. And I think there's a, a consensus or there's a general impression when reports like this are or task forces like this are carried out on a particularly thorny issue that most politicians don't want to address because it might undercut their funding source in some way. Um, I think another example is Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, has come under fire recently for failing to desegregate or integrate the schools. And one thing he keeps saying is, we're doing research, we're assembling task forces and, and the like. And so I think it begs the question, you know, this report that you delivered to Governor Rick Snyder in March 2018, he left office uh, about nine months later. Was there an impression from your side? Were, were any of those 33 recommendations acted upon? And when, was there any impression that you got that they were taking them seriously? Or did it feel like more of an exercise, just a, a PR exercise to make it look like they were trying to address the issue? Well, that, that's a very good question, uh, Jared. Again, um, I don't want to speak uh, specifically to someone's motives. You would have to ask them. But all those options that you mentioned, I would probably put my bet on all of them, right? I do think that Governor Snyder was in a tough spot because uh, uh, he was involved uh, not only in some key decisions that led to the uh, Flint water crisis, including appointing the emergency managers who most directly made the critical decisions. One of the things I was impressed by the Flint Water Advisory Task Force report, they didn't pull any punches on that. They 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 put the blame. I thought. Where I saw the blame, basically just reading other reports, uh, newspaper accounts, media accounts, talking to residents in, in Flint and so on. The Michigan Department of Environmental Quality and the, the Governor Snyder's appointed emergency managers were seen as uh, probably the principal factors in, in resulting in the Flint water crisis. And the, that report uh, also puts the blame squarely on Governor Snyder, too, So, uh, which helped me to have some credibility <laughs> about that report, because I think like, every, you know, I think like all of us, uh, we were all something to keep in mind uh, is um, uh, governors in Michigan are term limited to two terms. And uh, Governor Snyder was into his last year uh, when the report uh, came out in March. Uh, and um in some ways, I felt the clock was run was being run out. Uh, he did issue an executive order in July that uh, implemented a couple of the recommendations, but uh, to my knowledge, uh, there wasn't even enough time to, uh, you know, put those uh, recommend or put the executive um, order into effect. But then the election happened, and <clears throat> Governor Whitmer was elected, and um, uh, it was really her executive order in February 2019 that uh, resulted in creating the state environmental justice public advocate, who is uh, Ms. Regina Strong. She's the first person to hold that position. Before the Flint water crisis, mm -hmm. I saw reluctance 
uh, to use those terms, environmental justice or, or environmental racism, in the media, that changed after the Flint water crisis. And it seemed to me that the media were now openly using the, uh, that term. And uh, as you probably know from uh, the uh, televised Democratic debates, uh, environmental justice was raised frequently, and nearly all the candidates had issued uh, plans uh, to address environmental justice. So, Well, yeah, you just touched on one thing I definitely wanted to ask you about, which are the, your hopes for how the Flint water crisis will provide a urgency around environmental justice going forward. And I'm, I'm glad that you touched on that. So I think one thing that our listeners will be very interested in, Dr. Mohai, is there's an increasing realization that environmental justice and social justice and the broader fight for equality for all people in our country are really interconnected. And, and I really want to get your thoughts on that. One point I, I did want to make real quick on the issue of the corporations is that as part of our, our final assignment for your class, we were tasked to put together a recommendation for how we would address the existing environmental disparities and environmental injustices occurring in Michigan. And one area that I spent a lot of time looking into, having been informed in the past year by a podcast that I love by the New York Times uh, called The Daily, is an episode where they talked about how more than 100 corporations came together. Some of the biggest corporations in our country came together to issue a statement and a renewed philosophy around how they imagine corporations serving our country. And as a part of that, this uh, organization called the Business Roundtable, they signed this joint statement in which they outlined a shared purpose for their corporations to serve all of their stakeholders, including the communities in which they work. And some of these companies, as a part of this uh, statement, included Marathon Oil, Marathon Petroleum, and AK Steel, which are some of the the biggest forces that are implicated in these environmental justice issues in Detroit. And it's obvious that we're, if we were to take their words as they say them, that they are rethinking the pursuit of uh, profit above all else and including employees and the communities in which they work and all stakeholders as people they should be serving, then it's obvious that there's a, a huge gap in, in between those words and their actions. And as I was kind of going down this line of reasoning a little bit, I, uh, I came across this legal scholar whose name is uh, Lynn Stout, who teaches at the Cornell Law School. And uh, I would love to, to get her firsthand perspective on this, but she, she, write, she wrote an article that basically the idea of fiduciary responsibility in the sense that corporations should be pursuing profit above, above all else is not codified into our law. It's not codified into our structures. The idea of fiduciary responsibility, um, meaning that corporate directors have a legal duty to maximize corporate profits and shareholder values, even if it means skirting ethical rules or damaging the environment, is actually not, uh, it's actually been refuted by case decisions at the U.S. Supreme Court level. So for example, the 2014 case, um, the Hobby Lobby stores versus uh, Burwell Secretary of Health, she found that basically modern corporate law, she, she contended that that decision dictated that modern corporate law does not require for-profit corporations to pursue profit at the expense of everything else, and many do not. So I think there's a, a huge misconception that while Marathon Oil has a legal responsibility to continue this pollution, if it means that 
continuing the pollution is maximizing shareholder value. But what Dr. Stout would say, or, or Professor Stout would say, is that they actually don't have that legal responsibility. They are the intent is to pursue profit, but in a way that, as they have issued the statement, also includes the interests of their communities and includes the interests of their employees and everyone else. So I think if uh, you know they, if these corporations put their money where their mouth is, we will take the statement and use it as political pressure to get them to to change their actions. Exactly. Um, so, so on a different topic, um, a broader topic, which I know you're you're probably excited to speak to, given the time and investment that you've, you've spent in your career on this, uh, really is a, a public force for the environmental justice movement, Dr. Mohai. There was this interesting article that came out in the, in the New York Times recently that kind of tied this broader social movement of Black Lives Matter and fighting oppression to actually environmental justice issues. And it quoted um, a, uh, an activist who said that we're talking about racial inequalities and other injustices across the spectrum. We're not just talking about one thing, which is why this is a special moment. And the, uh, the reporter added that activists who have worked for decades on environmental justice issues say they are pleased to see the issue gaining attention in Washington, but they would like to acknowledge that it's important for policymakers to understand that in addressing environmental vulnerability is not distinct from problems of police brutality health disparities, or other racial inequalities. So in your mind, could you kind of paint this picture of how you see these issues as being interconnected in the broader fight for social justice? Yeah, well, they are interconnected. And the legal scholar, uh, Robert Kuhn, wrote a uh, an article in 2000 called Taxonomy of Environmental Justice. And he, uh, he describes... Uh, environmental justice uh, with with four components, uh, distributive justice, procedural justice, corrective justice, and then social justice. And when he talks about social justice, he talks about the connection that environmental justice uh, or injustice has with all these other uh, social problems, with uh, the outcomes of uh, redlining and segregation and discriminatory policies that have led to underinvestment in people of color communities, and um, including underfunded schools and the consequences of not having equal resources uh, to those with to those in, in white and more affluent communities, and that and the segregated red line communities are also the communities that were uh, eventually uh, uh, zoned for mixed uses and industrial uh, uses, and uh, industry has. Um, often use the argument, well, we're not discriminating deliberately. We're just looking, we need to locate a new plant. So we're looking for the industrial zones. But what about during the time where uh, zoning was used uh, specifically to segregate and discriminate uh, among the races in in the U.S.? So uh, I think that history, uh, very long history of discrimination and segregation uh, really connects a lot of these problems, uh, the poverty and the underinvestment, uh, the underfunded uh, uh, schools and uh, lack of uh, job opportunities, as well as uh, environmental burdens in, in people of color communities are all interconnected uh, because of that history. Uh, it's what people call uh, uh, institutionalized racism or structural uh, racism that even if we were able to um, wipe bigotry and prejudice uh, off the face of the planet, 
the disparities would continue because uh, we've already uh, structured a lot of economic and uh, political uh, life with institutions that, that if you let them run their course, will perpetuate uh, disparate uh, outcomes. So I, I see the interconnectedness there too, but I would like to add more than that. It's, it's. Um, I, I think there is a structural racism and and, and uh, in, institutionalized discrimination. That's a large part of the problem. But we can't get away either about uh, the attitudes. You know, there is uh, prejudice, there is bigotry, there is racism in the U.S. And frankly, it seems to be it's more and more transparent these days than than perhaps a few years ago. When I I was asked, well, it's to- almost below the surface a little bit, right? Like the as you were saying, the decision to put a plant, a polluting plant, in a predominantly or entirely black community is maybe not an act of overt racism, but it's really in a way diminishing the the lives of those who live there. It's kind of b- below the surface. Well, it's yeah, and you know, uh, linking this uh, back to the Flint uh, uh, water crisis. Um, I was asked to testify in in September of 2017 before the Michigan Civil Rights uh, Commission, and I was asked, "What what's uh, what's environmental racism, and uh, is Flint an example of it?" And I and I said, my, my part of my response was, "I don't think we're going to have anybody coming forward and saying that we poisoned the water in Flint because we wanted to hurt um, African Americans and other people of color." Where I see the racism is not caring and making those kind of decisions that would lead to those uh, negative outcomes and not caring about making it right to the extent that the state dragged its feet in acknowledging the problem and uh, doing anything about it and uh, maybe too little too late begs the question, is there a certain segment in society that uh, doesn't get the same consideration and uh, the same level of concern as other segments of the population. And that's where I see where I see the racism. And of course, we know the the opposite, the uh, not the opposite, but the extreme of that when you have white supremacy uh, happening. Uh, but uh, it doesn't have to go to that extreme to see the racial attitudes. And in fact, there's um, there are academics who've called this racial apathy, uh, where whites, it's not that they have high necessarily hostile feelings to towards African-Americans and other people of color, but they don't have a, a lot of concern about their welfare. And I think that that is partly what's going on. Right. And the name of the show is All Things Connected. And I'm increasingly realizing as I become older and wiser that things really are connected. You know, the we, we began this conversation by talking about how environmental problems you realize are largely problems of social issues, social problems, and rather not biological problems or ecology. And the first law, we know that the first law of ecology is that everything on our planet is connected. And increasingly, I'm realizing that social issues, you could say the same thing. You could actually say that about the structural forces that have resulted in these issues taking place, and you can even take it at the individual level. So you just talked about how the redlining and deliberate segregation by federal and state and local governments in the 1950s and 60s resulted in predominantly communities of color being segregated in places like East Palo Alto and Richmond, California, which Dr. Richard Rothstein talks about in his book, The Color of Law, and into Detroit. 
And the way that that policy acted was to segregate African-Americans into these districts where it was allowed because of, you know, in concert with redlining to put a, a landfill or to put a toxic waste dump or to put a polluting facility in that area. And so we see, okay, well, this environmental justice issue is occurring. Well, how did that happen? Well, we can look back to the 50s and 60s. And then we can also say, you know, there's a common thread in conservatism that says, well, for those people who are underachieving in society, if they would only pull themselves up by their bootstraps, then like everyone else does, then it's a free country. They're able to, to pursue what they want. But then if we look at the fact that 80 plus percent of students that, as you found, black students in Detroit are going to school in the most polluted parts of the city versus 44% of white students, and that there's a statistically different test scores, you know, cognitive measure there. And then you take, you add on the fact that these pollution costs are adding, you know, that, that they're spending an inordinate amount on health costs and they're out of work because they have asthma and other chronic conditions. And now they're unemployed. It's really a vicious cycle that feeds on itself. And these things are all connected. So uh, it's encouraging in the sense that if we can really get to the bottom of some of these things, which is, as you said, the structural racism and implicit racism that occurs in some of these decisions, then we can address the larger issues. But you really have to look at the nuance of these things. And even as we talked about earlier, from even before when a child is in the womb, and because of these things that happen in the 50s and 60s, their neurological makeup is being compromised. I mean, that's just something that we have to consider and we, we have to look at. Well, anyways, I, I uh, wanted to end on a, we've, we've talked a little bit, Dr. Mohai, about the Flint water crisis and how this has awoken the public consciousness around environmental justice issues. And your student at the time, many years ago, Dr. Mona has in large part really helped uh, catalyze that for us. So I, I wanted to end on a, a more optimistic note in terms of looking forward, what gives you hope and what signs of progress have you seen? I I know we've touched on a few about environmental justice becoming more of a mainstream issue, but any uh, last thoughts about what gives you hope that this is a problem within our lifetimes that we can tackle? Yeah, a couple couple things, Jared. And before I answer that question, I do want to just add to something that you said earlier. The uh, discriminatory laws and policies existed way before the 50s and 60s. So slavery officially was ended in the the, um, 1860s, but it was quickly replaced by all the Jim Crow and other discriminatory laws and policies. So we've had, in the U.S., we've had hundreds of years of slavery, followed by decades of discriminatory laws that segregated the the races, uh, resulted in redlining and disinvestment in African-American and people of color communities. And uh, what happened in the, the 1960s, so we're talking about 100 years after the Civil War ended, we finally had some legislation passed, the civil rights legislation in the 1960s, which officially ended discrimination. But I, I tend to look at it in two ways. First of all, a lot of damage had already been done by then or segregated, underinvested in communities. There were already a done deal uh, by the 18 or by, excuse me, by the 1960s. And as we're finding out now, as some people have pointed out, that uh, people's um, uh, racism has um, uh, evolved from a from a dog whistle to a blowhorn. 
So I think that I do think in the 1960s and afterwards when the civil rights laws were passed, I think there was a lot of op- optimism that things would turn around. And I think they did for a while, but they haven't, they haven't, uh, those laws in the, in the 1960s obviously have not solved all the problems and, uh, you know, still a long way to go. So I just wanted to add that to that earlier uh, conversation. Uh, regarding your question about uh, where I see the future, I, uh, I tend to, uh, I guess, naturally to be an optimist. Uh, so that might uh, affect my opinions on some things. But uh, right now, I see a lot of opportunity in the social change that's been emerging over a, a lot of different issues. Partly the evolution of the environmental justice movement and the increasing awareness throughout the country about the about the disparities. Um, and uh, I, fortunately, I do think there are a lot of people who um, do feel that fairness and, and justice are important. And uh, a lot of them, I think, are getting involved because they haven't been as aware uh, about what's been going on as now. I also feel optimistic because, at least in Michigan, I feel, some, I feel genuine momentum in terms of trying to change what's happened in Michigan. We've had a very uh, strong and growing environmental justice movement in Michigan. We have the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition, which has been around for a while now, and they're they're uh, they've been fighting very hard. They've been making sure that these issues uh, aren't aren't forgotten about. And with the uh, Flint water crisis and other issues in the state of Michigan, such as with uh, Southwest Detroit and uh, people's concerned about the pollution there got a number of, of, of great activists like uh, Rhonda Anderson and Teresa Landrum and uh, Dr. Dolores uh, Leonard have been fighting very hard for environmental justice in, in Detroit, many others. I feel optimistic because I think that the racism has become more transparent in the last several years. And uh, frankly, I just don't see how we're going to go back to business as usual. And on top of that, we've had the pandemic and there have been a number of studies and reports showing that the uh, coronavirus pandemic has been hitting African-American and other people of color communities uh, the hardest. And I think that that's also uh, has provided a lot of drive, if you will, in terms of uh, writing a lot of the wrongs that have been occurring uh, in Michigan and elsewhere. There's, for example, a racial disparities uh, task force that was created by Governor uh, Whitmer uh, specifically to try to respond to the growing uh, evidence that the coronavirus is hitting the African-American and uh, people, other people of color communities harder than others in the state of Michigan. It's hard for me to see how we're going to get back uh, to business as usual. You know, hopefully the pandemic will be over <laughs> sooner or later, hope, uh, hopefully sooner. But I don't see how we're going to get back to business as usual, even if the pandemic uh, were to go away tomorrow. Uh, I think that people's awareness has increased to, to the point and, and, and the extent that they've mobilized have uh, uh, increased to a point that I, I, I just cannot see that we're going to continue on where nothing meaningful is going to happen. And there are going to be people like Dr. Monahan Atisha and uh, me and others who are going to be calling it out. Show me the progress. Give me the evidence that we've actually improved 
the conditions in uh, impacted communities. We have to have that evidence. Uh, we we have to go beyond uh, making declarations of good intention. That's a that's an important step in the right direction. But again, what are we trying to achieve? What are the targets? How are we going to achieve them? And can we actually provide evidence that we've made progress? So we've got to be able to do those things. And I think if people keep that in mind and keep asking those questions, I, I just can't imagine that uh, we can continue on uh, with business as usual, as we have been for a very long time now. I couldn't agree more, Dr. Mohai. And as I mentioned at the outset of our conversation, I've spent almost my whole life thinking about environmental issues and striving to become an environmental activist, but I was just totally blown away, totally unaware of the gravity of environmental injustices happening in our country and happening, frankly, right here in Michigan, not 20 minutes from where I sit right now. And I think of all the pieces that I've I've read, there are a couple, but the Zoe Schlanger article in Newsweek really just shocked me and opened my eyes about how some other people in this in this very state, not far from where you and I are right now, are how they are living and the burden placed on them. And it's going to take a lot of bravery and activism and voting and participating in our democracy. But I'm hopeful we'll we'll, we'll see a day where uh, you know we we right these historical wrongs. Thank you for your time, Dr. Mohai. You've been great and. We have a lot to learn from you, and I hope um, folks come away from this more motivated to learn about environmental justice and to help to tackle it. Well, thanks very much, Jared. Thanks for all your uh, uh, great questions. Thanks for being a great student in the class. Uh, uh, <laughs> you've made it clear to me and uh, Professor Alan Cantor, who's my colleague on the, in the class, about the impact that the class had on you, and, uh, and also it was very clear to us how much you care about this issue. So, you know, we, I, I really want to know how much you appreciate not only your interest, but your obvious concern. If you're enjoying the All Things Connected podcast, there's many ways you can show your support. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, wherever you listen. You can share it with a friend or talk about it on your own podcast. You can post about it on social media, such as sharing your favorite episode, or you can support it directly on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash all things connected. Thank you very much. Your support is much appreciated.